Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 217. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you decided to join me. It's good to have you. So I want to talk a little bit about the principle of keeping pastoral distance, keeping pastoral independence. And this is something that has to be observed on a local level in local congregations, and it's something that has to be observed when we consider the broad, big issues of cultural engagement. A minister is ordained, set apart to the ministry of Christ, the ministry of God, and as a minister, he is there to represent God to the people. His job is to open the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord. Peter says, The one who speaks, let him speak as the very oracles of God. A pastor is supposed to speak with authority, and it's supposed to be an authority that goes far beyond any human authority. So, uh, a minister does, is not invited up to the pulpit so that he can share a few insights from his own life or tell us his, uh, tell us his story or, or things that he has learned along the way. Uh, his task is to open the Bible, read the passage, say something like, Thus saith the Lord, let me tell you what God wants us as creatures to hear. Now, this means that a minister, when he's executing his office, is uh, occupying two stations. He is the minister, he is the messenger, he is the herald, who is trained to announce from the Word of God what God wants the people to hear, and he's also one of the people. He's, if if I may speak this way, he is supposed to be sitting under his own preaching. Now, in order to do this, it is nece- and this is something that is particularly important for young ministers to learn. Uh, when you accept a call to a church, you are there as a, a messenger from God. You are a man of God. You are a messenger of Christ. And that means that you must not be in the back pocket of the church's biggest tither. That means you need to preserve your pastoral independence. You need to not get sucked into ecclesiastical politics, at least not that way. Or if, you, if you're in, involved in ecclesiastical politics, you are involved in it as your own man, answerable to God for what you say and do. So you, you want to make sure that you are answering to God. You, you want to um, minister as someone who is going to be accountable to God. And that means you have to maintain your independence, and there's got, there will be a few testing points where your independence is challenged. Don't you, know, don't you know, young man, who voted to call you in the first place? Or don't you know, young man, that we pay your salary? Or don't you know, don't you know that, that, uh, that three of the old, old ladies in the church were offended by what you said last uh, Sunday? Um, and the minister absolutely must retain his right, his responsibility to say what the Word of God says, to declare what the Word of God declares. 
Now, this also um, applies to other issues. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier other issues of larger cultural moment. Um, a minister and a board of elders, uh, but a minister particularly, does not answer to the CDC. A minister does not answer to the Republican Party, does not answer to uh, Black Lives Matter. He answers to God. And so consequently, and he, so uh, a minister does not, should not be in thrall to blue state politics, but it's important to note and emphasize he should not be enslaved to red state politics either. Now, how, what's the best preparation for that? The best preparation for this right kind of independence is the right kind of independence. In other words, disobedience is bad practice for obedience. Cowardice doesn't cowardice now doesn't help you prepare for courage later. You can't save up courage by being when you're when you're being cowardly now, you're not saving up courage for when you really need it. That's not that's not what's actually uh going on there. So uh here's a little story from the history of the Scottish Reformation. Early on in the Scottish Reformation, some renegades uh, attacked the castle at St. Andrews, and uh, Cardinal Beaton was there. And as Knox puts it in his History of the Reformation in Scotland, uh, Cardinal Beaton was busy at his accounts with one Miss Ogilvy. And uh, these renegades uh, assassinated the cardinal and, uh, and then holed up in the castle. So uh, John Knox, uh, meanwhile, uh, had been w- was on the lamb. He had been uh, the bodyguard for a martyr named George Wissert. George Wissert was burned uh, in St. Andrews, just a, a short distance from the walls of the castle. Cardinal Beaton had come out to watch Wissert being burned, uh, and, and Wissert had prophesied, in effect, that, that Beaton would be displayed uh, from those walls. And then shortly after that, after Wissert died, uh, these renegades assassinated the cardinal, holed up in the castle. The people of the town didn't believe that uh, Beaton was dead, so they went and got the body and hung it over the wall, uh, thus fulfilling Wissert's prophecy. Knox had been Wissert's bodyguard, and he had been sent away by, by Wissert shortly before uh, Wissert was arrested and executed. And Knox was uh, on the lamb around Scotland with a couple of young boys that he was tutoring. Uh, he wound up taking refuge in the castle, uh, coming back around to St. Andrews. He took refuge in the castle, and uh, there, was, there were chapel services going, going on there. And in one of the chapel services, a man named John Ruff, um, sort of in the middle of the service, summoned John Knox to gospel ministry. Knox responded by bursting into tears and leaving the room. And there you go. That was his call to the ministry. But shortly thereafter, he began preaching. He began preaching, sort of in the middle of this hostage crisis. I don't well. I don't know if it was a hostage crisis, but in the middle of this thing that was very much like a hostage crisis, he was preaching to the people in the um, chapel. Now Knox was preaching, included in his preaching, a condemnation of the sins of the people who were holding the castle. Right. So he's. He's being protected from the uh, Catholic forces outside. He's inside the castle, but he's preaching against the sins of those who hold them, who who were holding the castle, um, and that was 
the best preparation for Knox doing what he did later, which was uh, standing against uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, and, and so on. Basically, taking your stand for the truth, taking your stand on the Word of God, and insisting on independence. It, it, <laughs> if you just insist on being independent of the right wing, you're being steered left. If you insist on independence from the left wing only, you're being steered right. The minister must not be steered except by the text. He must, you know, he must understand what's going on. He must understand the culture. He, but he, he can't ever uh, shrink back from identifying sin for the sake of earthly politics or earthly political gain. He simply must not. So continuing on with podcast episode 217, we are continuing to study the sins of the New Testament, and we must distinguish an idol, which is always sinful, from an icon, which may or may not be. The word icon comes from icon, not surprisingly, uh, E-I-K-O-N. In English, it's spelled I-C-O-N, but in Greek, it's E-I-K-O-N, Epsilon, Iota, Kappa, Omicron, Nu, Icon. And it can represent something that is morally unobjectionable, like Caesar's image on a coin, to something glorious, like the image of God in man or the image and glory of man in woman. But there are numerous sinful uses as well. Uh, Romans one twenty three and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, into an icon, made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. To make an image of God himself is a violation of the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment particularly. Whether or not great art is involved, or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel for that matter, we are not competent to make an icon of God. Now, God is competent to make an icon of God. That's what he did in us. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And ultimately, God may, God displayed his image in, ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not as though there are, there are no icons. I, I go to a church, I, I pastor in a church that is crammed full of icons, but they are icons that walk around. They're icons that talk back. If you, uh, if you paint a picture of a great saint who's been dead for over a thousand years, and you light candles in front of it, and you and you pray to it, and you meditate in its presence, one thing you can be sure be assured of is that it will never uh, talk back and rebuke you. Um, that kind of, that that kind of icon is conveniently silent, but Protestant icons, let us call them your fellow saints, are frequently uh, very uh, very. Uh, vocal about your shortcomings, and they will tell you about them, and that is the kind of icon that's healthy to have around. It's the kind of icon that's important to learn how to deal with. So uh, that's one thing you you don't want to um, uh, you don't want to manufacture uh, icons when only God can make an icon. When you do make an icon, it's going to be some sort of thing. it's going to be appalling at some level. So um, I'm reminded of the first, not the uh, second wave of Narnia movies, but the uh, early. There was an early BBC version of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I I don't know who was involved in in making it, but uh, whoever came up with that vaudeville lion Aslan that they had, um, 
is <laughs> that kind of person ought to be flogged, right? That's that's just not right. And when when uh, if someone's making a movie about Napoleon Bonaparte, and you approach a great actor, a great method actor, about taking on the role, and he studies, he reads a few books on Napoleon, and he says, "Yes, I think I can." He looks at pictures of him, and he says, "Yes, I think I can get my mind around that. I think I can. I think I can become that person." Or years ago, I saw um, the a movie that Meryl Streep made about Margaret Thatcher, which was uncanny because she was Margaret Thatcher. She did a stupendous job in in being in being Thatcher. But when someone comes to an actor and says, um, "Hey, you look like..." paintings of an effeminate Jesus of the 19th century. Um, and if a person responds, yeah, I, th I think I can, I think I can get myself into that role. I think I, I can wrap myself around the role of being God incarnate. Uh, when the effect that they actually produce is the effect of that BBC vaudeville lion uh, instead of Aslan. That's the, that's one of the, that's one of the chief examples of impudence, but I have digressed. So, uh, let me go back to the other instances of icon that are sinful. The remainder of the uses of icon in the New Testament that are sinful are all from the book of Revelation and refer to the image of the beast. And I'm going to cite just a couple of the, I'm going to quote just a couple of those passages here and give you the references for the rest of them. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. That's Revelation thirteen fourteen. Here's another one. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That is Revelation thirteen fifteen. Another one. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark on his forehead or in his hand, goes on. So that, that phrase, the beast and the image of the beast, the beast and the image of the beast. Uh, the image of the beast is essentially sinful because of what it's an image of. Um, man created in the image of God is not essentially sinful. He's essentially glorious because he is created in the image of God. A woman is glorious because she's created in the image of man. So. The other uh, references in Revelation are Revelation 14.11, Revelation 15.2, Revelation 16.2, Revelation 19.20, and Revelation 20, verse 4. So, we're continuing on with uh, the podcast, episode 217, and here's the book review. This book is uh, entitled To Be As God. By Rusas Rushduni. Um, I've um, I read a lot of Rushduni back in the '80s, and really appreciated, really learned from uh, a, a number of his books, particularly the earlier ones. Uh, and just uh, Rushduni uh, is a was a very fertile uh, thinker, very um, um, very fertile thinker, uh, uh, the kind of thinker that makes you think. Whether or not he, whether or not you agree with him, is uh, sometimes beside the point. He's just very, uh, just very good that way. Uh, th this is a book I had not read back then. I, I had, 
And I just saw it. Uh, an acquaintance friend of mine had posted that they just finished it. No, I, th- I thought I hadn't read that. And this is this book is sort of an intellectual history of the modern world from the Marquis, the Marquis de Sade down. So from from that time down uh, to the present. Now, of course, the Marquis de Sade is a um, uh, is an atheistic, a frenzied atheistic figure. From whom we get the word uh, sadism. Uh, he celebrated the inflicting of pain. He celebrated uh, all kinds of uh, licentious and antinomian practices and published them. And he he um, got in trouble. This sort of thing uh, got him in trouble with the neighbors. He um, he wound up uh, spending a, a good deal of his life in the Bastille. But he was attempting to be consistent. Now. Ultimately, whenever a finite putt-putt creature tries to be consistent with the, their basic datum that there is no God, and they say, I'm going to live consistently with that conviction, here's the, pro- here's the problem, right? Uh, attempts at consistency are inconsistent. And then, of course, if you say, oh, that's right, <laughs> consistency only makes sense in a theistic world, so I'm going to be inconsistent. I'm going to be inconsistent because that's consistent with an atheistic worldview. Now, is not your inconsistency an attempt at consistency again, thereby making it inconsistent? In other words, you can run, but you can't hide. Um, so, uh, Desaad would celebrate things like murder. He, but he would not. He would not celebrate, um, for example. He he would tolerate virtually anything except Christianity, and and he was tolerating it with his thumb on the scale because it was always toleration of these things for me and not for thee. So, for, for example, um, if if Assad would justify murder, which he would do, the inflicting of pain and justify torture for pleasure's sake, justify rape, justify murder. Uh, he's doing this because of his unbounded liberty and his right to unbounded liberty. And you might say, but what about the person you're murdering? What, what about their right to unbounded liberty? And it turns out that what Desaad is arguing for is not unbounded liberty for mankind, but unbounded liberty for me, unbounded liberty for what I want to do. And basically, he's he's saying, I want to be God. I want to ascend to the sides of the north. I, I, I want to uh, take over everything. I want to be my own law. And I want to be able to do anything I want to any other uh, creature. Because, but because he's finite, he's got to function in terms of a zero-sum game. In other words, God is infinite. And it, it, God is the infinite creator. And so consequently, when God creates finite beings, it takes nothing away from God. But if I'm a finite God, then anybody who's running around loose and free, who's not me, is taking something away from me. It's a zero-sum game. It's a, and a zero-sum game is where you have a pie, and anybody who gets a piece of pie that's not mine, that means I get less pie. He gets more pie, and I get less pie. But God can create a world that is independent of himself, in which the, the fruitfulness of the world grows, and God is not lessened. 
this this is the ultimate lesson in um, in actually actually this is the ultimate lesson on why the zero sum thinking of all leftists, the zero sum thinking of all so all forms of socialism, is radically anti-Christian. God has created a world which did not take away from Himself. God gave and gave gave us a world in which the pie grows. So think of it this think of it this way. When the world was created, Adam and Eve were standing under the sun, and now there are billions of people standing under that same sun, receiving the same gift. And all of these billions of people are receptors of God's gifts, God's kindness. God can multiply opportunities for grace. God can multiply opportunities for giving, and that does not take away anything from him. And moreover, he's made the world, this created world, in such a way is that it, I can be generous to others without it taking away anything from me. I put a seed, put seed in the ground, and it comes back 30, 60, and 100-fold. Um, we, need, we really need to... Um, Rush Dooney is good on this. If you read through the intellectual history of Desaad down to the present, you will see that he opened, he unlocks many doors that you will be able to go through and think about profitably. Name of the book again is To Be As God, Rush Dooney. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Douglas Wilson's book, Mother Kirk, Essays on Church Life. Order today at canonpress.com. God.